Hellenic History by George Willis Botford. Chapter 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wes Freeman. Chapter 8. Intellectual Awakening. 750-479. Part 1. Social and Literary Progress. Correlation of Activities. 750 to 479. The Alphabet and Writing. It was due in part to increasing intelligence that about the middle of the 8th century the Greeks entered upon an era of industrial development, colonial expansion, and political progress. These movements, on the other hand, interacting upon one another, afforded so powerful a stimulus to the mind that we may describe the period thus beginning as one of intellectual awakening. The means of accumulating knowledge, essential to great progress, was the employment of the alphabet for the preservation of literature. While adopting the Phoenician alphabet, the Ionians modified it to fit the peculiarities of their language. As its use extended over Greece, it differentiated according to dialect into various systems. For a long time, however, it seems to have been restricted to the writing of names on lots and perhaps mercantile accounts. Thence it extended to inscriptions on gifts dedicated to the gods, lists of priests who officiated in succession at temples, and of magistrates after a limit had been placed on the tenure of office. The earliest documents involving connected discourse were laudatory epitaphs, treaties between states, and laws. Probably the Homeric hymns were long preserved orally. We cannot be sure of a written literature before the 7th century. The Rhapsodists the Iliad and the Odyssey, as stated in an earlier chapter, were mainly Iolic, dominated by Indo-European ideas. Not long after their composition, the Homeridae, sons of Homer, agents of Chios, were journeying through Ionia and the rest of Hellas, chanting them at the courts of the great and in popular gatherings. From the staff, Robdos, which these singers waved in marking time, they came to be known as Rhapsodists, Many were the minstrels, however, who made no claim to descent from their poet. The Cycle, about 750 to 600. Under the Homeric inspiration, Ionic poets of the 8th and 7th centuries composed various epics, forming a group known as the Cycle. These poems are lost. We know them through scant fragments still preserved, and through their extensive use by Attic dramatists of later time. From these sources, we learn that the Ionians of the period, unlike the Homeric Greeks, were essentially Minoan. They practiced magic, believed in ghosts, worshipped the dead, and had traditions of human sacrifices. They believed, further, in religious pollution incurred by homicide and in the power of cleansing such guilt by ceremonies of purification, especially with the use of swine's blood. In dress and armor also, they were heirs of the decadent Minoan civilization. An Intense Life of Increasing Complexity, 750 to 479. Life in Ionia during this period, however, was anything but stagnant. The change from rural to industrial economy, the growth of cities and of a leisurely class, as well as contact with the entire Mediterranean world afforded by colonization and commerce, brought this country distinctly to the foreground of Hellenic civilization. The abolition of kingship and the rise of aristocracies and tyrannies involving these factional struggles, added to the intensity of life. To express these complex conditions, the old epic verse of calm, stately meter, 
the dactylic hexameter, proved wholly inadequate. It gave way accordingly to new and varied measures, which would better exhibit the play of individual or communal thought and emotion characteristic of the new era. The Elegy, Calenus, about 650. The first variation from the epic verse is found in the Elgiac pentameter, whose spirit may be either meditative or emotional. Accompanied by the pipe, it lent itself equally to the expression of political and social thought, religious devotion, and martial fire. The first great master of the elegy was Calenus of Ephesus. About the middle of the 7th century, when the savage Sumerians from north of the Black Sea were ravaging the Ephesian territory, he roused his countrymen to battle with the following song. Sit ye in quiet how long, stir up the fierce spirit within you, have ye no feeling of shame, youths, for the dwellers around. Why thus remiss? Do ye think ye are sitting in blissful contentment, peace given while dread war holds all our dear native land? Now in the moment of death, hurl your last spirit the foe. Honored is he and esteemed who fights in the foremost of lancers, guarding his country, his home, guarding his dear wedded wife, fighting with foes, for death comes but once, and whenever it may be, fate cuts the thread of our life. Each must go quick to the front, grasping his spear in his hand, and under his shield his untrembling heart pressing, panting for fight, mingling in deadliest fray. Fate hath decreed that from death there shall be by no prudence escaping. Doomed are all mortals to die, saving no sons of the gods. Often the din of the battle, the hurdling of lancers surviving, sees man the terror of death stalking into his home. Weaklings are dear to no state, nor in death by the people lamented. Warriors the great and the small mourn when they face their fair doom. Longing intense fills all hearts in the land for the stout-minded hero. Dying in liberty's cause, living they hold him divine, just like a tower of defense in the eyes of the people appearing. Works he the deeds of a host, striving alone in his might. Tertius of Lacedaemon In its patriotic ideal and martial spirit, this poem is akin to the elegy of Tertius already cited. In fact, the latter poet must be regarded as a pupil of the Ionians. Along with the elegy, Tertius used other forms of verse, as did also Solon of Athens, who lived but shortly afterward. Archilochus a greater personal intensity distinguishes the poetry of Archilochus, the first Greek, hence the first European, of whose private character we are in a position, through the fragments of his verse, to obtain clear, though fleeting, glimpses. In addition to composing elegies, he was the first great master of the iambic, a measure adapted to energetic expression, giving utterance to the whole range of human passions, from love to sarcasm and hate. His stormy life was typical of the age and of his social class. The son of an aristocratic father and slave mother, in youth he was forced by poverty and want to leave his native Paros and join a colony his countrymen had established in Thasos. But he had no love for this new home, this woeful island that stands with wild wood bristling like a donkey's back, no fair land or lovely or dear. With his fellow colonists, he probably exploited the gold mines of the island, and certainly he fought with them against the Thracians on the neighboring mainland. 
having thrown away his shield and fled in this battle, a most disgraceful act, he afterward boasted of it. Vaunt some Thracian white of the beautiful shield I abandoned, all uninjured by scars, grudgingly left by the brook. Body and soul I have rescued. What matter, the peace may go begging, sooner new buckler I'll find, better by far than the old. A soldier of fortune. He could not remain long in Thasos, because, as he admitted, he was too insolent, abusing friend and foe alike, and doubtless prudence forbade his return to Peros. Hence he became a wanderer over sea and land, a poet-soldier of fortune, as he tells us. I am a companion of the Lord of War, and I know the lovely gift of the Muses. More drastically, he writes, Bread for me baked is the gain of my spear. In my spear is the vintage as Morris yields to my call. Lean I on lance while I drink. He seems a pirate from these words. There were seven dead men trampled underfoot, and we were a thousand murderers. These quotations are from his elegies. In an iambic poem he teaches a lesson in moderation. The gold of rich King Gyges stirs in me no hate. No slave of envy am I. I do not emulate the wondrous deeds of gods, nor love the tyrant's might. Such things unworthy lie beyond mine eyes' dear sight. A Tempestuous Spirit In love as in hate he reveals the same tempestuous spirit. Jilted by Naoboli, so reads the tale, he lost no time in sad lament, but with his biting iambics drove her and her sister to hang themselves. This man of muscle and redundant mental power, enjoying in a restless mercenary career the pleasures that came his way, giving deadly presents to his foes, or inspiring distressed friends with hopeful courage, wrote verses that placed him second to Homer, establishing him as the unequaled artist of personal song. Aeolian Culture, Alceus, about 600 to 550. Passing on from the 7th to the 6th century, we return from Ionian lands to the home of the Aeolians, who created the Homeric poems, and who, in Lesbos, kept cultural pace with their southern neighbors. Mytilene, the chief Lesbic city, trading with Egypt, enjoyed the imported refinements of the Orient. Less devoted than the Ionians, however, to commercial and the useful arts, the race gave itself wholeheartedly to social enjoyment to the lyre and song. Lesbos, the center of Aeolian culture, was the island of overmastering passions. The personality of the Greek race burned there with a fierce and steady flame of concentrated feeling. Here the poems of Alcaeus, mere shreds as they now are, lead us into the midst of civil strife. The monarchy had yielded to aristocratic factions through whose struggles for supremacy scheming leaders of the populace made their way to tyranny, nor was the poet himself clear from the imputation of seeking supreme power. Against his adversary Marcellus, he thus declaims, This man, this raving idiot here, with rank supreme and power great, will quickly overthrow the state. Already is the crisis near. The Poet's First Exile Zeus is angry at the motherland. The usurpation of the tyranny by Marcellus and the failure of a conspiracy to dislodge him drove the poet into exile at Pyrrha, a small but independent town in the island. 
There he apostrophizes his sorrowing fatherland. What purpose or intent is in thee, my country, that thou hast been so long time distraught? Be of good cheer, for the son of Kronos himself did tell thee that thou hadst no need to fear warfare, howsoever it should seize thee, nor should neighbor foemen, nay, nor oarsmen from over the far-bounded sea, maintain for long the woeful conflict of the far-flung spear. Unless thou shouldst of thyself send afar all the best of thy people, to sunder them from thee, for tis men that are a city's tower in war. But alas, thou no longer doest the Father's will, and a swift fate hath overtaken thee. Now I make this prayer for thee, that I may no longer see the daylight, if the son of Cleonax, or yonder Splitfoot, or the son of Archeonax, be suffered more to live by one whom his dear sweet native land, in factious strife as old as itself, together have done away. Soon the death of the tyrant, probably by violence, permitted the return of the poet's faction. Pitacus, Dictator, Nisimnetes Some time afterward, the establishment of a popular government at Mytilene again forced Alcaeus and his friends into exile. To guard against their armed return, the lesbians appointed their ablest man, Pitacus, Dictator. Of him the people sang as they ground their barley, Grind, mill, grind, for Pitacus himself is grinding, ruling mighty Mytilene. Pitacus himself employed monarchical power to dissolve the despotism of the many, but having accomplished his task, he restored the independence of the city. His generous amnesty recalled the nobles from banishment, and Alcaeus passed the remainder of his days in peace. During the long period of seditions, the poet had encouraged his friends by Songs of Party Strife, from which quotations have been made above. A wide range of interests. In addition to martial and political themes, he wrote on a great variety of subjects, including travel, nature, love, drinking, and other topics. His poems were personal lyrics, sung among friends, to the accompaniment of the lyre. His favorite stanza, named Alsaic after him and probably his invention, is fairly represented in the following translation of a convivial song for a wintry evening. Zeus hails, the streams are frozen, in the sky a mighty storm is raging high, and now the forest thick, the ocean hoar, grow clamorous with the Thracian tempest's roar. But drive away the storm, and make the fire hotter, and pile the logs and faggots higher, pour out the tawny wine with lavish hand, and bind about thy head a fleecy band. It ill befits to yield the heart to pain. What profits grief, or what will sorrow gain? O Bacchus, bring us wine, delicious wine, and sweet exhilaration, balm divine. The taste of after ages preferably cited his drinking songs, with the result that they abound among his extant fragments. We are glad to learn, therefore, from a Latin critic that he contributed greatly to the improvement of morals. With much of the genius, versatility, and fire of Archilochus, the Lesbic poet possessed a more amiable disposition. Both opened to us an invaluable insight into the life and character of their times, and both exerted a determining influence on the literature of after ages. Women in Society and in Literature, 7th and 6th Centuries 
In these times, the domain of literature was not monopolized by men. In fact, the social and intellectual development of women during the 7th and 6th centuries has a unique place in the history of the world. It is true that under Oriental influence, the upper-class Ionians segregated their women. Among them, wives never ate with their husbands or called them by name. Hesiod, the crabbed, parsimonious, Boeotian farmer, who regards woman as a beast of burden, quotes a myth which attributes the origin of all sin and suffering to a fair, deceitful girl. Straightway did the glorious lame one fashion the likeness of a modest maiden, as the son of Cronos willed. And the goddess gray-eyed Athena girdled and arrayed her, the goddess graces and lady persuasion hung chains of gold about her, the fair-tressed hours crowned her with flowers of spring. All manner of adornment did Pallas Athena bestow about her person, and in her breast the messenger, the slayer of Argos, put lies and cunning words in a deceitful soul, as Zeus the thunderer willed. Also the messenger of the gods gave her speech, and he named this woman Pandora, for that all the dwellers in Olympus had bestowed on her a gift, to be the bane of men that live by bread. It was she who opened the jar containing ten thousand evils, which forthwith flew out among men to distress them forever. Contempt for Women Such beliefs tended to degrade women in society. A tone of utter contempt pervades the poem of Simonides of Amorgus, which compares various types of women to different animals. The tattler is like a dog who goes about retailing news. Nor can her husband make her stop even with threats, though in a rage he should knock out her teeth with a stone, nor though he speak to her gently even when she is sitting in company with guests. The dainty and extravagant woman resembles a horse, who will do no mean or servile work. She will not touch the hand-mill, or sieve, or sweep the house, or sit by the fire, for fear of soot. She bathes carefully twice a day or thrice, and anoints herself with toilet oils. Always she wears her tresses combed and with blossoms shaded. A comely thing is such a wife for others to behold, but an evil to him who weds her, unless he be a tyrant or a king who with such things adorns his fancy. All, however, were constrained to praise the ideal wife and mother. In the poem of Simonides, she is like a bee. Fortunate he who wins her hand, for she alone to censure gives no cause, but in her life doth bloom and doth increase. Dear to her loving spouse, she groweth old. The mother she, of children fair and famed, distinguished she among good women all, a grace divine doth play about her form. General Freedom of Women, Their Luxuries, and Their Education Generally outside of Ionia, women went about freely in the streets, on foot or in carriages, and mingled with men in social life. Those of the wealthy class dyed their hair, painted their faces, and wore luxurious jewelry and dresses. The Doric peplos, a woolen garment fastened at the shoulders with large, deadly pins, was relatively simple. At first it was worn on all the Greek mainland, but at some time in our period the Athenian women changed to the Ionic keton of linen, either sewn or fastened with small pins down the arm. The new style of dress admitted of great elaboration. 
Over the keton of either form, the lady threw a mantle, epiblima, hymation, ungoing out. By combinations of bright colors, by costly embroideries and sparkling jewelry, the wealthy lady produced a brilliant effect. At the same time, the custom of large dowries had arisen, with the result that marriage was coming to be regarded as a business transaction. Early legislators attempted to check the luxury and the personal liberty of women, and Salon, in addition, restricted the dowry to three hymatia and a few cheap articles of household furniture. Notwithstanding his efforts, the high-born women of his country suffered but little restriction during the next century and a half, while throughout Hellas those of the middle and lower classes remained as free as ever. The liberty and power of the Laconian women have been sufficiently considered. In Boeotia, Argos, Sicyon, and Lesbos, there were women who received a remarkable education, as is evidenced by the poetesses of these localities. The sixth century, along with the early fifth, was in fact the most brilliant period, at least till recent times, in the intellectual history of women. Sappho and her friends, early sixth century. Sappho herself belonged to an aristocratic family which stood high in the politics and society of Lesbos. She was influential enough to suffer banishment with her relatives for political causes, and in time appreciation of her genius grew till her native country honored her by stamping her image on its coins. In a society which could not separate loveliness of form from perfection of character, she became the center of a literary circle, only in this sense a school of beautiful, brilliant girls. They, too, were composers of music and song. In this circle, it was a disgrace to be illiterate. She who writes not, declares Sappho, will go down ignobly in Hades' realm. Yea, thou shalt die, and lie, dumb in the silent tomb, nor of thy name shall there be any fame in ages yet to be or years to come. For of the flowering rose that on Pieria blows, thou hast no share, but in sad Hades' house, unknown, inglorious, mid the dim shades that wander there, shalt thou flit forth and haunt the filmy air. Relations between Sappho and her girlfriends Undoubtedly, the circle represents an effort of highly gifted women to rise above the humdrum existence, alike of drudgery and fashion, to the nobler life of the mind and heart. Between Sappho and her girlfriends, there was the warmest attachment. The following poem has reference to a pupil who deserted her for another instructor. So my Atis has not come back, and in sooth I wish I were dead. Yet she wept full sore to leave me behind, and said, Alas, how sad our lot, Sappho! I swear tis all against my will I leave thee. To her I answered, Go thy way, rejoicing, and remember me, for thou knowest how fond I was of thee. If thou rememberest not, I am fain to remind thee how dear and beautiful was the life we led together. For with many a garland of violets and sweet roses mingled, hast thou decked thy flowing locks by my side, and with many a woven necklet, made of a hundred blossoms, thy dainty throat. And with many a jar of myrrh, of the precious and royal kinds, hast thou anointed thy fair young face before me, and reclining upon the couch, hast thou satisfied thyself with dainty meats and sweet drinks. Nausidica, who now lives in Sardis. 
Here as elsewhere, she glorifies the beauty of form and the pleasures of sense. Another poem, addressed to a girl still with her, was doubtless to be sent to a former pupil, Nasidica, now living in Sardis, most probably the wife of a Lydian grandee. At this, our beloved Nasidica dwells in far-off Sardis, but she often sends her thoughts hither, recalling how once we used to live in the days when she thought thee like a glorious goddess, and loved thy song the best. Now she shines among the dames of Lydia, as after sunset the rosy-fingered moon beside the stars that are about her, when she spreads her light o'er briny sea, an eek o'er flowery field, while the good dew lies on the ground and the dainty anthrisk and the honey lotus with all its blooms. And oftentimes when our beloved, wandering abroad, calls to mind her gentle atthus, the heart devours her tender breast with pain of longing, and she cries aloud for us to come hither, and what she says we know full well, thou and I, for night, the many-eared, calls it to us across the dividing sea. Summary of Sappho's Interests Here are interesting glimpses of woman's literary life, of social relations between Lesbos and Lydia, of telepathic sympathy added to a delicate appreciation of natural beauty in the night, the sea, and flowers. Often elsewhere are sympathetic touches of nature, as when she speaks of spring's messenger, the deep-voiced nightingale, or refers to the spot where, all around through branches of apple orchards, cool streams call, while adown from the leaves a-tremble, slumber distilleth. With all of her love of flowery fields, cool streams and singing birds, her interest centers in human beings, their sorrows, joys, loves, and marriages. In the beauty of her thoughts, in melodious verse, and intensity of feeling, she scarcely has an equal in literature. But the Athenians of later time, who could not appreciate freedom and high intelligence in women, gave her a bad reputation, and their judgment prevailed till modern scholarship succeeded in vindicating her character. Choral Lyrics The poems of Sappho, like those of Alcaeus, were personal lyrics. Meanwhile, other poets were engaged in composing choral lyrics which were essentially public. This kind of ode was sung by a group of persons appropriately dressed and trained, who accompanied the song with a rhythmic movement or dance. The equipment and training involved expense borne by a wealthy person, or, more commonly, by the state. The ode was expected to express accordingly not the feelings of the writer alone, but of the whole community. In Greece, there was no sharp distinction, such as now exists, between society and state. The citizens were mostly known to one another, and the reunions of kinsmen, neighbors, fratres, and of the entire community and festivals were not only social, but religious and civic functions. These circumstances explain the existence of a form of poetry which was at one and the same time religious, social, and civic. Arising from unpolished folk songs, they gradually developed an artistic character in the hands of skilled composers. They were most at home in the Doric states, especially in Lacedaemon, where the government aimed to regulate communal life, so to speak, in a harmonious rhythm. Among a people delicately sensitive to sights and sounds, the patriotic and moral appeal was made less to the intellect than to the eye and ear. The best known among the earlier masters of choral song was Alkman of Lacedaemon, whose poems have already been cited.
He is most celebrated for his Parthenia, choral songs for girls. There were similar odes for grown women, boys, and men respectively, presented at the religious festivals of the state. The form of ode which contained the germ of the drama will be spoken of in other connections, whereas the treatment of Pindar, the greatest of choral lyrists, with his contemporary Bacchylides, belongs to a later period. End of chapter 8